Imagine with me for a minute, if you would, that when we gathered here in this space today, we weren't gathering for a chapel in the middle of the week, but you had gathered at a friend's wedding ceremony. You've traveled many miles to get there, you're in the place, and you run into a family that you haven't seen for a long time, and so you strike up conversation, and, and the atmosphere feels already festive, and we haven't even started yet. In the back, you can smell the food that's coming and the dinner you're going to sit down to. And you saw it all on the way in and, and you brought your gift and you, and you came prepared. You had responded to the RSVP and you said you were coming and you made all of the arrangements. But now that you're in the space, as, as the atmosphere starts to get a little more excited and the details start to get, come together and the band starts to play, the whole place just starts picking up an energy a little bit. But maybe it picks up an energy to, to such a point that we almost stop start forgetting why we've even gathered in this place. And, and then all of a sudden at the end, at the back, the, the bride comes with her dad and, and she's standing at the end and everybody's still talking and nobody's actually realizing that the bride is here and so she's got to do one of these like, <clears throat> um, I'm here moments. But everybody keeps going and they don't realize that the bride is at her own wedding and we kind of took the whole thing over and we forgot amongst ourselves why we were here. From John chapter 2. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal, for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need human testimony about them, for he knew what was in them. It's hard to create an illustration that creates some sort of parallel with what was happening in this text. I think often we come to this text and we kind of neuter it and we want to get it down to this little simple meaning that Jesus got angry, therefore it's okay for us to be angry when people do things that are against God. But there's so much more going on in this text than just righteous indignation. And if we miss it, I think we miss its real application and its challenge for each and every one of us. 
thought, how do I do that? How do I create the illustration? I thought about not even reading the text and getting that glass Dort College podium we have and then smashing it with a sledgehammer or walking into the president's office and flipping his table over or disrupting class or coming out screaming while the band was trying to play and lead us in worship. I've gotten to conduct a whole lot of different weddings. And I realize that in the process of preparing and executing a wedding, there comes a moment where every bride and groom almost come to this realization, this epiphany where they realize, um, we just want to actually get away on the honeymoon because this whole wedding day actually isn't about us at all. It's for everybody else. And their own wedding gets usurped from them. This text is about this same feeling that Jesus had. It was Passover. It can't be stated big enough how huge this event was for the Jewish people. July 4th, Thanksgiving and Christmas all rolled together. A national identity holiday above all others. People have returned from all over the Roman Empire. The city streets have swelled. And you've got to understand this courtyard that Jesus is in where these animals would have been being sold and the Tyrian currency is being purchased from all these different economies from around the world that have come to the courtyard. We're in the... We're in the court of the Gentiles. It's 450 yards by 300 yards. Imagine the size of four football fields. Temple records not long after this year when this book was written record hundreds of thousands of Passover lambs being bought and sold and sacrificed that year. So imagine in this courtyard hundreds of thousands of animals potentially and blood that was running off of an altar so thick it's created a steady stream like a creek running out of the place. To come to the temple for Jerusalem was to come to a place that would have been the equivalent of the, the White House and the World Trade Center and the Chicago Board of Trade and, I don't know, fill a Yankee Stadium and put a whole bunch of this stuff all together and where your social and religious and political life all meet. The temple, N.T. Wright says, was the heartbeat of Judaism. And like any good God-fearing Jew, Jesus would have returned to the temple every year for Passover. Like everybody else. I don't know if you noticed this though, in the Synoptic Gospels, this story always comes at the end. And it's what leads to, it's like the, the inciting incident that leads to the death of Jesus. But in John's Gospel, he doesn't write his story chronologically necessarily, he writes it theologically. And he kind of tells us up front, like the final straw that broke the camel's back for the leaders is this event. So I'm going to tell you about it at the beginning, and then I'm going to show you all the things that happened that got us there. And I don't know if you've noticed this either about the Gospel of John, but there isn't a collection of parables in it. Jesus' teaching the other Gospels and the synoptics happens in parables, but in John, the teaching actually comes in the confrontation and the interaction with people who are coming looking for an experience with God, longing for something more in their life. And so we see the teaching of Jesus played out in his actions and in these interactions and not in the storytelling of parables. John's gospel revolves around these visits. And whereas in the synoptics, he only comes to Jerusalem for the Passover at the very end. And John, he comes three, some would argue, even four different times. But this is the inciting incident. And so it's up front. If you read John's gospel all the way through, you catch little key words. In the first chapter already, he has John the Baptist seeing Jesus coming at a distance. And he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
John the Baptist declares this over him. And now the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, has come to the place where you celebrate the Passover Lamb. And he's come to show us that the, the Passover Lamb is not a centerpiece at the table, but it's come to be center stage at the temple and to change everything. And they can't see it. The Lamb of God shows up instead of the Passover Lamb, and nobody can identify it. And they can't recognize him for who he is. It's like Jesus showed up at a Jesus lookalike contest and finished with a participant ribbon. They don't get it. The bridegroom shows up for his own wedding, and they don't believe that it's him. There's been some religious creep happening. All of this stuff used to get sold over on the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley right outside of town. But for some reason in recent years, it's now made its way into the court of the Gentiles. That's as far as a Gentile was allowed to go to get closer to an experience with God. So you imagine someone's traveled the world to come to a place to have an experience with the Almighty, and all you can hear is cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching with the exchange of money and the bleeding of animals. And how in the world are you going to pray in a place the size of four football fields with animals running through it and money all getting exchanged and all this cacophony of noise taking place all the way around you? How are you supposed to pray in the middle of that? You see, but we do it too. Every Tuesday night, I stay up late getting ready for chapel. At the end of the night, I go out in my backyard and I sit on this little park bench and I look up at the stars, kind of calm my brain down so I can find sleep. And as I was sitting there, I was thinking about the slides that I was supposed to run and how the music would come together and how we'd put all the details in place. I thought, well, this is ironic, isn't it? A little bit of religious creep. With all the details and the busyness. Into a place where I'm supposed to tell the story about just an experience with God. And notice who Jesus chases out? It's not the buyers. It's not the people who come looking for an interaction and an exchange with God. It's those who stand in the way of them. Makes me wonder about our worship as we organize it together. Like, is there ever moments where we're in worship and, and Jesus wants to just like break in in some way and we're like, no, 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 like it's, we've got the order of the worship here. You've, you've got to pay attention. We follow along. There's, there's a schedule to this stuff. Or Jesus wants to just break through in a moment and show us something and the pastor's like, yeah, but I got this crackerjack of a sermon I put together. I spent 15 hours on this. Like, is Jesus still in many ways on the outside looking in of the very event that is designed to pay acknowledgement to him? How much of our Christianity is taking place without Christ? You ever notice even the way we talk about religious people? We'll often talk about a person with a great faith or a great knowledge of the Bible, which is still actually a few degrees removed from someone who's had an incredible experience with the risen Christ. Can you see how that's just a little bit off? You know, you can fundraise for the local Christian school and turn into a jerk in the process because you treat somebody like garbage along the way. And you can replace Christ with a cause really easily. I could sit down with a Bible on my dining room table trying to go seven stories deep into the meaning of a text all the while my next door neighbor a couple doors down could be crying themselves to sleep.
We can include all these practices. Discussions about what instruments we're supposed to employ to make this all work and come together all, all super well as if Jesus had a preference between a guitar and a piano. How many things are we doing? How many activities are we filling ourselves with in the name of Christianity that in many ways is void of a Christ? Can we be so busy trying to be a Christian nation that when the refugee on hands and knees embodying the Great Commission comes crawling to our borders, we can't even recognize him? I can do it in my own life. I don't need a national example. I probably do this regularly, if not daily. Do you? And I love how they challenge Jesus. Listen to this line. What sign can you show us? How much of the interaction of our faith is demanding that God will prove himself to us? God shows up at God's event and the people say, Prove yourself. What an odd turn of events. If you were here last week, we talked about the fact that one of the things we see in John's gospel that's so front and center is the way that the, the God, the Father who is, who is above us becomes the Son who is beside us and, and the heaven and earth had intersected and collided in the presence of the temple now comes in the presence of Jesus. But before the story even ends, if we want to jump ahead a little bit further, that presence of Christ, that intersection of heaven and earth, the incarnation of the transcendent God that came to be imminent and present and, and with us moves from the God beside us to the God even within us. And the intersection of heaven and earth now takes place through the gift of Jesus Christ, through the presence of the Holy Spirit inside every one of us. So Jesus can say, destroy this temple, what difference will it make? And did you catch the end of this story? Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. He won't perform the miracle on demand, but he still came to heal and to bless and to put people back together again. So what do we do with this text? My favorite way to read it is to read it like it's all about somebody else. Yeah, those religious people who sell Christian crap at festivals, music festivals, you know, like the bracelets and the t-shirts, those are the guys that we're talking about today. That's the modern-day application. Or when my church does this, or when we make it all performance and we do this. And every one of those arguments are all outside of myself. But the challenge of the text is if the temple used to be outside and then the temple came and dwell among his people, that now the temple and the interaction of heaven and earth is inside of me. The question is, am I as eager to see Jesus come and clean house in here as I am for him to do it in everybody else? I think that's the challenge of the text. Yeshua, Yahweh to the rescue, comes to celebrate and commemorate a meal that celebrated and acknowledged the historical moment when Yahweh came to the rescue and delivered his people. And he comes to deliver them again, and they don't want deliverance on his terms. And in the same way, sometimes I think I'm still living my own life, but I still don't want deliverance on God's terms. And so for that temple inside you and inside of me, this is the new courtyard. 
This is a new place where the gospel gets sold out for religious practice, for a distancing between myself and God, for telling myself I'm really busy about the things of the kingdom when Jesus can be a stranger to it. Where I can replace Christ with a cause. Where I can go to, twice, to church twice on a Sunday, but have never met him. This is the courtyard that he's after now. The Holy Spirit wants to flip over some tables inside your heart. That's the next one. It's the part of this text I wish wasn't there. But I think it is. Can I declare that that name is so beautiful that I want it in every part of who I am? Can I forsake all the activities and busyness to distract myself with to actually let him have his way here? I'm actually going to do something we don't normally do and I don't think I've ever done. I'm going to ask the band to come back up. Um, will you guys play for us? Um, and if you can cue that up. What a beautiful name. Can we do this one more time? And Ian, um, they're all going to sing a little bit louder than they did the last time. Because Yahweh is here. God has come to be here, and we're going to acknowledge him in our presence just a little bit louder. So we're going to sing a little bit. If you've got to create a little bit of elbow room between you because you want to belt that out a little bit louder and sing at the top of your lungs, go for it. If you've got freedom and you've got space now, will you please rise as we're going to sing without anything in the way because he came to get rid of them all, to give you this space, to come face to face with your king.